Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our Director of Spiritual Formation, Marjorie Mott. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sitter, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples have gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them the spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I could see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is the word of the Lord. So I I actually want us to start with a reflective practice. So if we could actually close our eyes again. I want you to think about what 
you want. Maybe start with your body. Like, what is your body wanting right now? Is it a nap, a snack, a hug? And there, consider, why is that what you're longing for? Consider what does that thing you want, what could it offer you? What is the desire beneath it? Perhaps rest, connection. And pause to consider if there's any desire even beneath that. I want you just to hold on to what you notice. Because tonight I'm going to be talking about desire. And you're welcome to open your eyes if you want. How often do you consider what you want? To ask yourself, what do I desire right now? Maybe it's just me, but I suspect it's not. But as a mom with little ones, I know I really easily forget to think about what do I want right now and to not ask myself that. My desires often go unnoticed. This passage, I'm going to focus in on John, uh, we're in John 4, but focus in on verses 13 and 14. And I want, um, let me just read that for us. I think I have that on a slide. Thanks, Justin. Jesus answered, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is using the analogy of water to tell the Samaritan woman that he has come to satisfy all our desires. And that if we are willing, our desires can draw us closer to him. So if you hear nothing else tonight, hear this. Our desires can draw us closer to God. And God can quench all of our desires. There isn't much to explain here how I've pulled out this concept of God being able to satisfy and to quench, right? Jesus just literally said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. It's obvious that Jesus can satisfy, that he will give this life-giving water. But what exactly is Jesus quenching? Let me explain why I believe Jesus is referring to desire and his ability to quench specifically our desires. In verse 14, He says, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is talking about placing something within us that has the ability to usher in life, like a bubbling spring welling up with water. This should remind us of Proverbs 4 verse 23. That says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The Hebrew phrase here literally translates, from the heart are the outflowings or the outgoings of life. Our heart is this wellspring of life. And we know the heart is the birthplace 
of desire. God has placed in us desires and the freedom to choose to quench them. We can choose to be a spring of water welling up to eternal life, or we can be a stagnant pool that breeds death and decay. Now, eternal life here isn't just some reference to an afterlife, right? But I would believe here that God is saying that this eternal life, this is life with him now, that we have access to this now, that we have access to a life that flows with peace and hope. God has given us desires to draw us closer to him, desires that well up to a life of peace, hope, and faith. Our desires draw us closer to God, and God can quench all of our desires. So if we're going to talk about desires, then I want to introduce you to one of my favorite Christian heroes, somebody who wrote a lot about desires and whose teaching has deepened people's faith for centuries. That would be St. Ignatius of Loyola. All right, I got a snazzy picture. Oh, burp, burp, burp. Thanks, Justin. You're doing great. All right, there he is. He was a Spanish Catholic priest who died in 1556. He was in his 60s when he passed away, but obviously this, he lived a long time ago. Some call him the first psychologist because his writings are so heart-focused. That's probably why he's the only saint I really know anything about. <laughs> but I know a lot about him. I've read a lot about him. Um, for those of you who know the practice, the prayer practice, the daily examen, this guy is who created it, St. Ignatius. He's known for his principles of discernment or spiritual exercises. And these aren't just some steps in how to make a decision, but he really establishes a way of life that is spiritually discerning which requires an awareness of our desires. So I want to share with you some things that St. Ignatius taught about desires. He said that our deepest desires, essentially here, this is the snapshot of his summary, they're good and given from God. I want to read to you a couple quotes. Um, I have the book, by the way, if anybody's interested, of the guy who um, I'm pulling these quotes from that wrote about Ignatius. But Ignatius taught that God dwells within our desires. Not only are desires not evil, but they are also one of God's primary instruments of communicating to us. Ignatius did not seek to squash desire, but to tap into the deepest desires of the heart, trusting that it is God who has placed them there. I love this image of our desires being a means of communication with God, a way of us drawing closer to him. Now, Ignatius recognized that not all of our desires are good. I feel like to calm our, like, all our evangelical like, backgrounds, all right? And he had a term for this. He talked about sinful desires as disordered desires. So he called them disordered or ordered desires. He sometimes even called these sinful desires our lower desires. He believes that we sin not because we've followed our desires, but because our desires are disordered. 
And actually, I want to read the whole quote here. That is, the whole collection of our desires are placed in the wrong order, leaving us to follow petty, superficial desires rather than the great, big desires that God has placed in our hearts. What are these great desires? Ultimately, they are variations of actions that will lead to faith, hope, and love for God and our fellow neighbor. Sin comes from our desires being in the wrong order, being out of balance, or too heavily influencing our decisions. It's how we go after our desires that turns us to sin or turns us to good that turns us either to evil or turns us to God. Do your desires turn you away from God? Does your desire break connection with God? There are desires that are obviously sinful that God doesn't want. Desires that misuse power, that use violence. That desires for selfish gain and desires to numb our feelings. Another quote. We fall into sin when we are ignorant of the true God-given desires beneath the apparent desires. We sin not because we are in touch with our desires, but precisely because we are not in touch with them. I don't know about you, but I feel like that kind of like blew up how I normally thought about desires. I feel like I was raised to kind of ignore them and to deny them. And here Ignatius is calling us forward to, act, to say that actually our sin is ignoring our desires, to be out of touch, to be unaware of them. So even our sinful, disordered desires can draw us closer to God. That's good news, right? That even our sin can bring us closer to him. We have to be willing to examine our sinful desires to see what greater desires lay beneath. Being in denial doesn't help, right? Like if you're in denial, you're totally ignoring them. You're not actually creating a space within you that's willing to examine and to wonder, to be curious And to be curious, you actually have to have a non-judgmental presence, even with yourself, creating that safety, even for yourself, to acknowledge, to let these desires emerge, to bubble up into your conscious, up to the surface. When we are aware of our desires, we can allow them to draw us closer to God. We can allow our thirst to be quenched by God's life-giving presence. In this story, Jesus is saying, if you ask, you can have this life-giving water. And whoever drinks this living water will never thirst again. Are you asking God for a drink to quench this thirst, to quench this desire? God can quench all your desires. So this sermon is in a series of what Jesus has to say about um, sexuality and marriage. So you might be wondering, how does this relate to sexuality? Well, desire is a pretty key part of sexuality, right? 
that's probably obvious. Um, most of us probably come from a church background that has made us feel ashamed for our sexual desires. That has sent the message that our sexual desires are bad or wrong or sinful. How would we live if we believed that our sexual desires could draw us closer to God? If we believe that God dwells within our sexual desires, if we believed a desire for God is beneath our sexual desires, I'm not saying all of our sexual desires are good and God-given. We've picked up a lot from our culture and our, and our world, a world that is broken. And so we all have a broken sexuality. We all have a broken sexuality. But we have to believe there is goodness to discover, to discover what is beneath the brokenness, to, dis, to discover what this desire is beneath the greater desire that Ignatius spoke about. I'm intentionally not going to talk about what I think makes sexual desires disordered or ordered. Right, what makes them sinful or not. Because I don't think that's what Jesus would do in this moment or in this way. Because actually in this story, you see Jesus sidestep a religious right or wrong debate. To stress his longing to see people connect with him in a worship that is with their whole being. In harmony with God's character. Let me explain, because I think I've missed this most of my life. But the Samaritan woman asks how she can get this living water. And Jesus tells her to go get her husband, which is a trick question. He knows she doesn't have one, that she's had five. And he says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So, the, so Jesus has just verbalized what is probably her biggest shame. Now, we don't know why she has five husbands. It could have not been in her power. Perhaps this is something even done to her. But in a culture where divorce was not acceptable, this is why she was going to get water at noon at the hottest part of the day because she was ashamed she was not welcomed. She was an outsider. So this story, this part of her story, is what kept her separate and alone from her culture. And yet Jesus comes here and speaks it right to her that I know this about you. And in response, she deflects. And she brings up this religious debate that's focused on defining what's right or wrong. Basically like, okay, well, you tell me where to worship. Here in this matter, she's talking about which mountain to worship on. But it was a religious debate of the time. Jesus responds by telling her that a time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. He says that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. He repeats that phrase two times to get our attention. So what does this phrase mean? In spirit is for us to worship with our interior world, with our longings, our desires, communing with God about them. And in truth, meaning to be in harmony with God's character. 
Jesus doesn't want to get into the what's right or wrong of religious religiosity that stresses. But instead, he stresses that God wants worshipers who will bring their whole selves, their whole interior world, who will name their desires with him no matter how messed up or disordered they are. God wants people to be more concerned about reflecting his, char- his character than following a list of right or wrong. Our desires can draw us closer to God. God can quench all of these desires, even our sexual desires. Even our disordered sexual desires can draw us closer to God. Because God is more concerned about connecting with you through your desires than giving you a list of what's right or wrong. God is more concerned about knowing you at such an intimate level that you're talking to him about your sexual desires than he is about giving you a list of what's right or wrong. He wants these desires to draw us closer to him. He wants these desires to draw you to himself, to be a means of communing with you. He wants all of you to meet you in your desire Under your sexual desire are desires for connection, intimacy, to be known, to have security. Desires that God can quench. God is the only one who can always quench those desires. So instead of denying our sexual desires, let us consider... What would it look like for us to offer ourselves a non-judgmental presence in observing and examining our sexual desires? What if we sat with our disordered desires, we welcomed them to have a seat, to learn the desire beneath, to hear from them? What if we considered that our disordered desires Tell us about what we want. What if we considered what these disordered desires are telling us about what we want even underneath that? What would it look like for us to believe that our desires can draw us closer to God and that God can quench all of these desires? To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.